Again, I love that as we gather our attention around these statements that they aren't dead sayings from a lifeless person, but they are living and active sayings from a living and active God who rose from the grave. Last week we looked at Jesus' word of forgiveness, the first statement from the cross on forgiveness, and it shows what Jesus did to our sin through his death and just how far he removed our sins from us. Uh, But today we look at Jesus' second statement from the cross that gives us the word of assurance. It's a statement he says to a thief who's dying on the cross beside him. And as you know, Jesus was crucified between two thieves, two criminals, and, and one who in his last minutes decided to mock Jesus and reject Jesus, and another one in his last minutes decided to follow Christ and became a Christian at the last minute. The last minute. I love it when stuff, it's not always the best way, but I love it when stuff comes together at the last minute. I drive my wife nuts with this. Everything comes together in the last minute. I love books where it doesn't look like it's going to come out. There's not enough book left. And then on the last page, it all comes together at the last minute. I love news stories where it's not looking too good and the detective or whoever figures it out at the last minute and they're saved at the last minute. I love movies. One of my favorite movie genres is disaster movies uh, because I love that everything's going wrong with the world for two hours and then one minute before the credits roll the hero saves everything and it's as if it never happened I love that I love it in sports when it comes down to the last minute anybody remember the greatest Royals game ever come on somebody the 2014 wild card game Bottom of the 12th against the Oakland A's. An infield single scores Eric Hosmer to tie the game. Christian Colon steals the seventh base stolen by the Royals in that game. Perez at bat hadn't hit a thing all day. The count is two, it's two outs. The count is two and two. Perez singles down the line to left field, scoring Cologne, and the Royals win their first playoff game in 29 years. And if you were born in 1986, like me, that was a really great day when they finally won this game. (laughs) So Jesus is hanging between these two criminals, and the Greek word for criminals here is literally evildoers. And one of them turns toward Jesus and he's saved at the last minute. And it's the most famous last minute salvation in history. And in his very dying seconds, he converts. He trusts Jesus for salvation. And Jesus gives us the second phrase, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. And it's a very important statement from Jesus. And it's an important text of scripture because it tells us in this one passage what you absolutely must know to be saved. It tells us how you can be certain you're saved. So I want you to listen to this message today as though your life depends on it. Because I believe it does. And I'm going to preach this message today as though your life depends on it. Because I've known too many people who have gone to church their whole lives and still hadn't settled this issue or still weren't sure about this issue. But this one passage tells us how to be certain. And I'm going to explain to you as clearly and as simply and as succinctly as I know how what it means to be saved and what it means to be absolutely sure you're going to heaven when you die. And listen, I'm not trying to diminish the Christian faith to just getting into heaven. We have a purpose much bigger than just existing for a little while and then at the last minute making it into heaven. 
But like I said, I've, I've known people who have gone to church their entire lives and not sure of where they were going when they died. And I don't want you to ever have any doubt again whether you're going to heaven or not. And I want you, when you finish listening to this message, to be absolutely certain that if you were to die today or in the next hour, you would go directly into the presence of God forever. Now, there's a lot of things that you can know about salvation. As North Americans living in this day and age, we get to know a lot about salvation and a lot about God and a lot about Christianity. We have people who have done extraordinary things to get us a Bible in our hands, and we have churches, and we have Bible teachers, and we have theologians, and we get to know a lot, but there are some things you absolutely must know. So I'm not going to tell you everything you could know. I'm going to tell you what you must know. And this is what the dying evildoer on the cross next to Jesus knew. As I was preparing this message, I felt led to keep the outline together that we gave you in such a way that this could be a tool for you. This could be a resource for you. Because there's going to be a moment in your life where you visit someone or you're sitting next to someone who is in their last days or their last hours or their last minutes. And death is going to be very real. And the opportunity is going to be there for you to help them decide where they will spend eternity. So I want to equip you for that conversation so that you can tell them what they must know to be saved because it's going to be bottom of the 12th two outs the count is two and two in their life and you're up to bat and they may choose the way of the criminal who mocked Jesus or they may choose the way of the criminal who decided in his last minute to become a Christ follower but that's their decision and that's on them but they had better know what they needed to know to be assured. By the way, I think one of the greatest gifts that you can give your family, your friends, your loved ones is the assurance of where you're going when you die. I've been to a lot of funerals where the family wasn't sure. And they'll stand around afterwards and they'll say, well, they went to church and they had a Bible, but I'm not really sure if it took. Many of you know my grandfather passed away recently. And I think the greatest gift that he gave his family and his friends is that we know where he is right now. And I know because I stood next to him in church and I heard him sing his guts out to God, declaring the goodness of the Lord, hearing him use his lungs and his mouth to declare God faithful and his promises sure, off key and everything. And I have one of his Bibles now, and it's held together with duct tape. And it's got notes from his pastors and his favorite Bible teachers, and it's got stuff stuffed in where he wanted to remember certain things, at certain passages. And I heard him pray for his family and for the lost and for his country. And I saw him serve others and give generously with what he worked for because he knew it was really all from God. And every visit ended with him expressing his joy and that his family were Christ followers. And it wasn't an act for other people. He really desired to honor God every day of his life. And he didn't leave us guessing. So as we walk through this outline, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself, do I believe this? And do I have assurance that I'm saved? And have I demonstrated that to my family 
so that when I leave, when I die, they can be sure I'm with God. You don't have to be obnoxious about it. I'm asking you just to be strong in it and know that someday, as we go through this, know that we, we don't think about this enough, but it is very highly likely that at some point in your life, you are going to visit someone, be sitting next to someone who's in their last days. So think about that as how you would share this with someone else. But we're going to start in on the passage now. It's Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Approve it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you. In other words, I guarantee it. I promise you. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, if Jesus says you're getting in, guess what? You're getting in, okay? It's true. So let's tear this passage apart and look at each statement this man says from the cross. This guy doesn't know much. He's probably uneducated. Probably hasn't had a day of education in his life. He's a criminal. I mean, he's what we would call a low life. But he knows what he's got to know, and he knows enough to get him into heaven. So what did he know? The first thing he knew, and the first thing you and I have to know is, number one, I must know I'll face God after I die. So you've got to know that when you die, you're going straight into the presence of God. At any moment, I could go directly into the presence of God through death or rapture. And when the first criminal joins the crowd and the soldiers in insulting Jesus, the second criminal says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? He's saying, hey, bro, don't you get what's going on here? Look around, man. Don't you see your situation? Man, you're about to meet God. You're seconds away from eternity and you can run from God your whole life, but there comes a time you can't run anymore. He says, do you not fear this? And the reason why so many people ignore God is they think that death is just the end, but death is not the end of anything. It's the beginning of your eternal life. It's the beginning of your eternity in one of two places. The Bible says this over and over, that I'm going to face God when I die. The Bible says I'm going to be judged at the end of my life. There's going to be a day when my life is judged. Hebrews 9.27 says each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And it's foolish to spend your entire life unprepared for something you know is inevitable. In fact, I would say you're not really ready to live until you're ready to die. You're not ready to live until you've settled this issue. The second thing this guy knew, and we've got to know this too, is I must know I've sinned against God. He said it this way. He said, we deserve to die for our crimes. He's admitting, I have sinned. And the Bible doesn't tell us what this guy has done, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. James 2.10 says this, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Let me say it this way. Here's the problem. Heaven is a perfect place. And if God let imperfection into heaven, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. It would be filled with jealousy and gossip and pride, and backstabbing, and impatience, and heaven would look just like earth. And aren't you glad we don't have to live here forever? I'm so grateful we do not have to spend forever in this place. There's just too much sadness, there's too much sickness, there's too much death, there's too much suffering. 
I want to live in a perfect place forever. And there is just no way you or me or anybody else could deserve heaven, that we could make it. We're too imperfect. I want you to notice this on your outline. A circle in that, in that verse, we deserve to die, where the criminal says we deserve to die. And then notice this next verse on your outline. It's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Find the word wages and the word gift in that verse and circle those because I hope you know the difference between wages and gift. So let's say that, that your employer comes to you. Your employer calls you into their office and they say, I have a gift for you. You're going to love this gift. I just thought it out especially for you and got it just especially for you. And I'm, I'm going to be your favorite boss ever because of this gift. And they hand you an envelope and inside the envelope is your paycheck. You would go, this is no gift. I deserve this. I earned this. I earned this paycheck. I deserve, I earned these wages. A gift is something you don't deserve. And if we deserve anything, we deserve to be eternally separated from God. We don't deserve heaven. It's a gift. It is a gift from God. So I got to know I'm going to face God after I die. I got to know that I don't deserve heaven. I've sinned against God. And number three, I must know Jesus was more than a man. Notice the third thing the thief says. He's He's uneducated, but he knows the important stuff. And what he knows is this man has not done anything wrong. You might want to circle the word anything because he doesn't say Jesus here hanging on the cross. He's better than we are. He's not as bad as some people. He's a really good guy. No, the word anything in in this language would have meant nothing ever. Nada. Zip. This guy's never done anything wrong. And you just can't say that about a mere human being. Because humans are frail and we make mistakes. We have failings. We have sins. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. So when this guy says he hasn't done anything wrong, he's saying this is not a mere man. Yes, he's human in human flesh, but he's God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is called the great exchange. Jesus says, I've never done anything wrong, but I'll take everything you've ever done wrong, everything everybody has ever done wrong. I've never sinned, but I'm going to take every sin, the curse of every sin. I'm going to take the emotion and the weight of every guilt, every shame, and I'm going to carry it myself, and I'm going to crucify it on the cross. That's why Jesus is called the Savior of the world. Now, if I asked you this question, who has saved the most people in human history? It's other than Jesus, and I'm not talking spiritually. I'm saying who has physically saved more people than anyone else in human history? If I told you who it was, you've probably never even heard his name. My guess, I guessed Bruce Willis. He saved a lot of people, right? (laughs) Who has saved more lives in human history than anyone else? If you Google that in, you would come up with the name Norman Borlaug. And he was an agricultural scientist who invented high-yield, disease-resistant crops that saved over a billion people from starvation in the 20th century. He died in 2009 
at age 95. And he is one of only six people in history who has received the Nobel Peace Prize, the Congressional Medal of Honor, and the President's Medal of Freedom. One of only six people in history, and you and I have never even heard of him. The executive director of the UN World Food Bank said this, Norman Borlaug has saved more lives than any man in history. His heart was as big as his brilliant mind, but it was his passion and compassion that moved the world. He was truly a great man. He was a real hero. He's credited with saving over a billion people from starvation. But here's the interesting thing. Norman would not tell you he's any kind of a savior. In fact, he didn't even consider himself a good guy. Because when he was a kid, he put his trust in Jesus Christ and was a lifelong member of an evangelical Lutheran church. He was a Christ follower, and he was the founding trustee of the Christian compassion organization Bread for the World. And when he received his Nobel Peace Prize, he quoted the Bible, specifically Isaiah. So here's a guy who's credited with saving over a billion lives, and even he says, I need a savior to get into heaven. Even he did not deserve heaven. Here's my point. Some people are more moral than others. Some people are nicer than others. Some people are kinder than others. Some people don't do as many bad things as others. But the Bible says apart from Christ, we're lost and we're spiritually dead. And when you're lost, looking around at other lost people and comparing yourself with other lost people and saying, I'm not as lost as you, doesn't get you anywhere. Dead people don't lie around and compare their lifelessness. So it doesn't really matter if you're Norman Borlaug or if you're Mother Teresa or if you're the Apostle Paul. You are saved only through following Jesus, who was more than a good man, more than a good teacher, more than a good prophet. He was God. Number four, I must know only God's grace can save me. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. This criminal on the cross knows he can't save himself. He can't get off the cross and go do a bunch of charity work. He can't get off the cross and go do a bunch of good things to make up for all the bad stuff that he's done. All he can do in this moment is throw himself on the grace of God. And he just says two words, remember me. I mean, this is the shortest salvation prayer in history. It's two words. Now there are Christians out there And don't get me wrong, they're well-meaning Christians, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they're well-meaning Christians who think that you have to use certain words in order to be saved, or that you have to say a certain kind of prayer in order to be saved. And if you don't use the certain words, or if you don't pray the certain prayer, you're not going to be saved, and you're not going to get in, and it doesn't count, and it doesn't matter. This guy does not use any of those words. He doesn't use the word justification. He doesn't use the word atonement. He doesn't use the word redemption. He doesn't use the word propitiation. He doesn't even say, I repent. It's not there. He doesn't say, I trust. He doesn't say, I receive you into my life. He just says, remember me. And Jesus says, you're in. And this proves that it's not about words. It is not about the words you say. It's about your attitude. It's about your faith. It's about your faith. I want to tell you a story, and this is a missionary story. And as a pastor's kid, I've heard a lot of missionary stories. And I love them, and this is one of my favorites. It's about a guy who was a Bible translator, and he worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he went to one of the inner jungles 
in South America, specifically somewhere in Mexico. And these tribes don't speak Spanish. Uh, They just speak their indigenous language. And this missionary was going into one of these jungles and he was going to learn their language, create an alphabet, translate the book of Mark into their language that, so they could have a book of the Bible, so they could learn about Jesus, so they could have scripture. And this translator was there for eight years translating the book of Mark into that indigenous language. And during the eight years as he's doing this, he keeps telling people about Jesus And he keeps sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not a single person became a Christ follower. And as you can imagine, he was absolutely devastated. I mean, so disappointed. And it it came time for him to take a furlough, which means he was being called back to the States for a break. Right before he left, there was a middle-aged farm worker whose name was Jose. And Jose had a heart attack. And They took him to a nearby village, and he was in a primitive hospital with an oxygen tent over him. And the missionary said, on my way leaving, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to share with Jose the gospel one more time. And so he goes, and he sees Jose laying there in the oxygen tent, and he's coming in and out of a coma. And the missionary knelt down beside his bed. He says, Jose, do you know that God is your creator? And Jose, in this groggy state, says, See, he says, do you know that Jesus is God's son and that God sent him to tell you that he loves you? And Jose said, see, he said, Jesus Christ is God's son. He died on the cross for everything you've ever done wrong. Do you believe that? Jose said, see, would you like to put your trust in him? Would you like to open your life to Christ and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins? And Jose said, see and slipped into his coma. And the Bible translator, the missionary said, I don't even know if the guy heard me or not. I think he was just being polite. When he left, he was in a coma. Nearly a decade later, that missionary got a chance to go back to that village. And when he went to the village, he found a thriving church of 65 people. And he said, this is great. Who came and shared with you the gospel? Who came and planted this church? And they said, nobody. You remember Jose? He got well. And when he got well, he grabbed the gospel of Mark and he started this church. So how much do you have to know or how much do you have to be able to say to become a Christ follower? To get into heaven? See, that's it. You got to be able to say yes to God and no to yourself. You got to be able to say, no, I'm not trusting me. I'm not trusting my understanding. I'm not trusting my feelings. I'm not trusting what I know. I'm, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I'm saying yes to Jesus. Listen, if you could get into heaven by your good words and your good works, don't you think all this was a waste? I mean, seriously, if you could get in on something good that you did, Jesus wouldn't have had to do what he did. And if there's a less bloody, less painful way To save you, don't you think God would have taken advantage of it? The thief knew there was no other way and that only God's grace could save him. And you got to know that only God's grace can save you. So don't complicate the gospel. Don't complicate the good news. Don't try to tack on additional conditions that Jesus never required. I mean, where was this criminal baptized? He wasn't. 
Now, there are well-meaning Christians who will tell you, you have to be baptized to be saved. But that's not in Scripture, and there's really no good work that you could do that's going to get you into heaven. Now, you ought to want to be baptized. The thief didn't have the opportunity. If he would have had the opportunity, believe me, he would have taken it. We have the opportunity. We ought to want to be baptized. We ought to want to have the public statement that we're saved. But baptism doesn't make you a Christian. It shows that you are a Christian. So adding on any good work or any activity that you could do to be saved or stay saved is called legalism. And I need to talk to you about legalism a little bit because many of us have experienced legalistic churches or legalistic Christians. And and legalism says, what you're saying is just too easy. What you're saying is just way too easy and it gives people a license to sin and it gives people a license to do wrong. Legalism is adding steps or works beyond the grace of God to the faith of the individual. And we tend to gravitate towards legalism. We tend to like legalism because it gives us a feeling of assurance. We feel assured because I'm doing this or I'm not doing this or I'm following this rule. I'm doing this activity. It makes us feel assured. Legalism gives us temporary feeling of assurance based on self. However, the gospel gives us real assurance because it's based on God. It's based on Christ. So I can feel assured when I'm keeping certain rules, but real assurance comes from Christ. And the irony of legalism is that it doesn't actually make people want to work harder. It makes them want to give up. So people who grow up with legalism and then rebel are not rebelling against Christianity. They've never even experienced real Christianity. While the people who stay faithful have experienced the grace of God and they know there is, there's nothing else. Nothing even compares. Nothing is sweeter. Now, I, I also need to tell you that the pendulum can swing the other way and sometimes we start playing the legalism card at every rule and we start playing the legalism card too often. I'll tell you what I mean. If, if a church or an organization has requirements for you to serve or lead, that's not legalism. I'll give you an example. To serve in Rockbrook for kids, you have to have a background check. And you might say, well, that's legalistic. Well, no, because salvation is not what's at stake. The care of the kids, us serving the kids is what's at stake. So salvation, legalism, when you attach works to salvation... So be careful when you play the legalism card, but be extra careful not to add anything to salvation other than the purity of grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8 says this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. Listen, if you could earn your way into heaven, can you imagine what an ego trip heaven would be? I mean, we'll all just be up there, well, I gave a million dollars to this, and I did this every week of my life, and I never did this, and I would never do that, and I served this person, and I moved to this country, and I was a missionary. No, here's what heaven's going to be like. Whoa, you said C? Yeah, I said C. Isn't God good? There's only one way we're getting into heaven. Free gift from God. Number five, I must know Jesus will save me if I ask. 
And the criminal adds, when you come into your kingdom, he believes Jesus is God. He believes that Jesus isn't just a good teacher, isn't just a good prophet, just a good man. And notice that this guy hanging on the cross, he doesn't ask Jesus to take away his pain. He doesn't ask Jesus to take him down from the cross. He doesn't ask Jesus to heal him right there. He's heard the miracles. He's probably seen things. He doesn't ask for relief from the pain or relief from the cross. Why? Because he recognizes his deeper need is not the pain he's in, but the salvation of sin that he desperately needs. And the good news isn't that God saves you from your trials. The good news is that God saves you from your sins. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, how can I be absolutely sure? How can I be absolutely sure I'm saved? Well, you don't rely on your emotions, you don't rely on your feelings, but you rely on the promise of God's word. And this is why it's very dangerous when people start picking and choosing verses from the Bible that they're going to believe and ones that, that they're not, or they start adding or taking things away, or they start explaining things away, or they start changing meanings because as soon as you start doing that, you're making, as soon as you start making verses that are hard for us to hear, more palatable, you're putting the salvation verses on shaky ground. Listen, the Bible is true, every word of it, because God cannot tell a lie. Is there anything God can't do? Yes, God cannot lie. And Jesus hanging from the cross says, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this guy may have not felt like he was headed for heaven, but he was. So four things we can pull from this about salvation. Number one, salvation is immediate. Now there's, there's a certain group of Christians, and I don't, I'm really not trying to dog on other believers and other Christians, but as I preach the gospel to you today, the problem is not that you've never heard it. The problem is that you've heard a lot of wrong things, and so I'm trying to clear that up. So there's a certain group of Christians who believe that when you die, you go into the grave and sleep until Jesus comes back and everybody's raised and goes to heaven. But that's not in the Bible. And Jesus doesn't tell the guy today, you'll be in soul sleep. He tells the guy, today you'll be with me in paradise. So salvation's immediate. By the way, it doesn't say today you'll be with me in purgatory. If purgatory really existed, and if anybody deserved it, Wouldn't it be the guy who's done wrong things his whole life and in the last minute decides to believe in Jesus? But the word purgatory is not in the Bible. In fact, the last pope, Pope Benedict, said that you don't even have to believe in it anymore. Why? Because it was made up a few hundred years ago. It's just a tradition that was made up. It's not in Scripture. So you really don't need to to concern yourself or hang on every word that the Pope says, but at least the last one cleared up that it was just a tradition. Being in the presence of God is immediate and it's assured. I'm going to give you these last three really quick. Salvation is certain. He says you will, not you might. And salvation is a relationship. He says you'll be with me. That's salvation. It's not rules. It's not rituals. It's not regulations. It's a relationship with God. And number four, it's a place forever. And finally, the question is, when can I be saved? 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Indeed, the time, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. 
So if you've been waiting around for the right time, if you say, I'll do this when the time is right, when it feels right, I'm really glad to tell you that today's the day. (laughs) The right time is right now. It says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm so grateful that I could stand here today and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Would you bow your head? Let's go to prayer together. In this closing moment, I want to ask you if you've settled this issue. Have you acknowledged the same facts as the dying thief on the cross? It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or how long you've done it. God wants to save you. Now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, but remember, it's not about the words I use. It's about your attitude. It's about your faith. I'm just adding in what we know from the thief on the cross and from this outline today. So as I pray, you say in the quietness of your heart and your mind, me too, God. This is between you and God now. Heavenly Father, I know that when I die, I'm going to give an account of my life to you directly. And God, I recognize that I have ignored you. I've done what I've wanted to do, and I've sinned. Starting right now, I want to turn to you. God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die in my place. I know that I don't deserve your forgiveness, and I know that only your grace could save me. And God, I know that I could never be good enough to get into a perfect place. So thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you took all the guilt of everything I've ever done wrong on yourself, and you made me acceptable for heaven. And God, just like that thief on the cross, I'm saying to you today, remember me. Just like that man down in Mexico, I'm saying yes to you. I believe in you. It's through Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.